0: You're listening to the Faith Roots audio podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Welcome to the end from the beginning. This is episode 10. If you haven't listened to episodes one through nine, you need to go back and get them in order to make sense of this one. This is a cohesive 12-message series, and all of them are important. And uh, I don't think you're going to get them if you listen to them just one time. I'm teaching a little bit more detail than ever before. And I want to encourage you to go back and listen and listen, mark the scriptures and and read along as you can. So for this reason, uh, the audio alone may not be enough for you to grasp everything I'm trying to get across in this section. So make sure you do that. Isaiah 4610, New English Bible is our text. I reveal the end from the beginning, from ancient times, I reveal what is to be. God says that you can go back and look at what I said in the very beginning, and it will show you the things that are coming in the future. That's in essence what he's saying. And he clearly says it here in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. If we were trying to get this concept across to you in numbers, it would be like this. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 7 being the middle. And what you see is that the one on the end and the one on the beginning are very similar. The two on the beginning and the two in the end are very similar. The three in the beginning and the three in the end are very similar. And that's what we see here, that the earliest chapters of Genesis reflect the end chapters of the book of Revelation and so forth and so on. And so what we have is the end from the beginning. We can learn a lot about what will happen in our times if we'll go back and study what was written at the very beginning. Now, the book of Revelation deals largely with events of the coming seven years of tribulation. And uh, in addition, it reveals something about the 1,000 years of peace where Messiah rules on planet Earth, Uh, whereas the shadows of Genesis do reflect that, but they seem to relate also to pre-Revelation events, in other words, things that are happening now and in the very near future. So we're going to examine the early chapters of Genesis, particularly chapters 12, 13, and 14 And we want to see if they give us any ideas as to what might be happening in modern times and what has been happening in modern times. I am calling this the Abraham sequence because it is the beginning of Abraham's walk with God. So Genesis chapters 1 through 11 uh, don't have a lot to do with Abraham, chapter 12 the focus is totally on Abraham. So let's read Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country. And by the way, Abram is his name before God changed it. It means exalted father. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, you shall be a blessing. That's good to know. That's what God uh, wants to get across to us. That in order for us to be a blessing to others, we first must be blessed ourselves. God wants to use us as models, examples. No salesman does an effective job without a free sample. He gives away things. He gives demonstrations. That's what God wants to do. He wants to use his blessing on us to draw people into the goodness of God. That's what he said to Abraham. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Now, all of a sudden, we're entering into a little different phase here. God is saying, I'm going to use you as a dividing standard for the whole earth. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God made Abram this standard by which he would deal with all the people of the earth. Now, he had promised to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, and the fulfillment of this promise is at its greatest in the person of Christ. Uh, Jesus healed the servant of a centurion in Matthew's Gospel chapter 11. The centurion was a Roman, he was a Gentile, uh, but he was a God-fearing Gentile. And he asked Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus, of course, said, I'll I'll come and heal him. He said, no, Lord, you don't have to come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But I, like you, am a man under authority. And I have soldiers under me. Now we read through that very quickly, but the man very quickly identified three positions. He said, "There's the authority above me. There's me, and then there are the men under me." So I say to this man, "Go," and he goeth. To this man, "Do this," and he do this, or and he does it. And um, to a man, "Come," and he comes. He says, in other words, they obey me because of the authority that I'm under. He's in effect saying to Jesus, "You're under authority. You're under authority to God the Father. You're under authority." to a higher being than yourself. Jesus loved that. It didn't trouble him. Uh, he understood that. That's why he did come, is to do the Father's will. And here's a guy who recognized that. Uh, so Jesus in Matthew 8, 11 says about the centurion, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this centurion believed in Jesus, but Jesus connected his faith to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning that the greatest fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham is in Christ Jesus. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, "...Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. So that's Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what God said to Abraham. Then he goes on to say, Jesus did, Mark 16, 15, going to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, meaning that the blessing of Abraham to the whole earth would have its highest impact when the news of Jesus is proclaimed to the whole world. Matthew 24:14. this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Then shall the end come. He is saying that in order for Abraham's blessing to have the impact that it is supposed to have, the gospel has to be preached around the world. So the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise reaches its zenith in Jesus Christ. He is the one that makes it go. A lot of people don't realize this. I did talk about this earlier in this series, but Jesus was both the sacrifice of Abraham and the sacrifice of God. He is the son of Abraham, according to Matthew 1.1. He is not just the son of God. He is also the son of Abraham. So when he died on the cross, he died as the son of Abraham and as the son of God. He was in both uh, places at once. Fascinating thing. Now, the covenant with Abraham and his heirs is an everlasting covenant. So I want to read to you from the book of Psalms, chapter 105. And beginning in verse 6, it says, O seed of Abraham his servant. You children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. God never makes a covenant that he does not intend to keep forever. Now, think about the rainbow. We talked about the rainbow in the last section. And the rainbow is a covenant sign from God that the earth will never again be destroyed Uh, by the waters of a flood. Won't happen because God has given us the rainbow covenant. And that's what it means. Now, God intends to keep that covenant and it doesn't matter what people on earth do. In fact, men have perverted the symbolism of the rainbow. And it doesn't mean what it used to mean when God gave the rainbow as a sign of his covenant to mankind. But God is not going back on that. He's not going to suddenly destroy the world again with the flood of water just because people messed up. For the same reason, God will not do away with the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because many of those people and the people who came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob messed up. We have all messed up. So God didn't throw away the covenant just because there was a shortfall. All right, now let me read to you. He said, This covenant he made, or he remembers his covenant forever. Psalm 105 verse 8, The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. And by the way, uh, we've not seen a thousand generations pass yet on planet earth. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. So what is the everlasting covenant? The everlasting covenant is the covenant God gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the offspring of those three, the nation of Israel, belongs to these people. It is the land of Canaan. It's theirs. And it belongs to them. And anybody who tries to take a part of it away, I don't care how powerful the U.S. president is, you go back and look at history every time. Any world leader has tried to take away the holy land and give it to other people other than the children of Israel, a curse comes upon them. They are not blessed when they do it. surest thing you can do to get yourself in trouble with God is to take land that he gave to Israel and give it or try to give it to somebody else. And uh, someone said they took it from the Palestinians. You need to do your homework, and you need to read carefully uh, the writings of Mark Twain and what he saw when he went through the Holy Land in the 1860s, how empty it was, how it did not have a lot of people, the the Palestinian people or the Arab people, and they weren't called Palestinians then, they were called Arabs, and the the uh, land of Palestine referred to the Jewish people who were there, and uh, and that all changed when they declared statehood in 1948, and they took up their biblical name. The, the name Palestine was an insult to them. We'll get into that later. But uh, anyway, they accepted the name, if that's what they had to be called, during the time that that land had been promised to them by the British. But the, the thing that matters is God made an everlasting covenant to give this land To the Jewish people. And it was promised to them. And I don't care who says what. Uh, The land belongs to them. They came back. They reclaimed it. They reworked it. The blessing of God is on it since they came back. You go back and look at what it was like before they came into the land, and it was desert. It was malarial swamp. It was not blessed. It was cursed. No empire could make it fruitful not until the Jews came home. And then the blessing of God hit it. Now, this covenant cannot be annulled. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says this For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Somebody says, Well, Pastor Willie, that uh, Old Testament stuff has all passed away. OK, I'm glad you said it because I'm going to go to the New Testament now and I want to read to you the book of Romans. And this is what the Apostle Paul had to say about the Jewish people, even those who did not believe in Jesus the Messiah. Look at Romans 11:11. 11, 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles... How much more their fullness? In other words, if you're a Gentile follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to want to see the children of Israel restored to their land for this reason, that they were blessed, or we were blessed when they fell, How much more will we be blessed when they are exalted? For I speak to you Gentiles, Paul said, Romans eleven thirteen, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, God set them aside as they were driven out of the land. Doesn't mean God was done with them, but He quit pouring covenant blessings on them because they had rejected everything He had to say up them that time. Uh, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the fir- first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, uh, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, but do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. We have been put into a spiritual olive tree that has its roots in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why we tell their stories. When we teach our kids the Bible, we teach our kids the stories that happened to the Jewish people. Uh, We talk about Jews, David killing Goliath, and uh, the Apostle Paul, and the, the book of Acts, all of those believers who followed Christ that we read about in Acts, they're all Jews. And without those Jewish people, we have no gospel, we have no Messiah, we have no Scripture, we have nothing without them. We owe them a great debt. It is frustrating from time to time because many of them do not believe in our Messiah. But that does not mean for a minute that God has written them off. God has promised an everlasting covenant. And the first way that he, uh, he brings that covenant about is he puts them in the land. And that's what we read about in the, uh, the book of uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. They come home to the land. They will have their spiritual issues settled after they are in the land. Now, there have been a number of attempts to drive Israel out of the land, and it happened in 1948. The minute they declared independence in 1948, May, uh, they were hit from all their neighbors, every neighbor around them Syria, Iraq, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon. Uh, there was support from Saudi Arabia, perhaps other Arab nations, but they got hit from all sides by these nations. They were outnumbered, they didn't have the weaponry of the West, they had not yet received much help from any country in the West, and against all odds, they won their independence. And it, it could only be said that God made it happen. It's a miracle of our time. And I know a lot of Christians have gotten so tired of hearing this, you've written it off, but the greatest miracle of modern times is the restoration of the nation of Israel. No other nation of people ever in the history of the world has been driven out of the country and stayed out for more than 500 years without totally being absorbed by the nations around them. That is not true of Israel. They've not been absorbed. They've kept their identity. Uh, I could say this, if God has forgotten the Jew, the devil certainly hadn't. And that's what we see in the Holocaust. The devil certainly hadn't forgotten the Jewish people. He went after them with a vengeance, tried to wipe them from the face of the earth. And so you see, God has not forgotten his people. He has brought them back. Now, This curse of Genesis 12, 3 is still very much alive. I will curse him who curses you. I bless him who blesses you. Adolf Hitler cursed the Jewish people. Uh, What did that do for him? Uh, I mean, the man is in the lowest hell today, not just in ordinary hell. Uh, The scriptures talk about a place in hell where the rulers go. Uh, that's even worse than where the average person might go. The nations that fought against Israel from 1948 and onward, they've not fared well. Syria has not done well. Iraq has not done well. Lebanon has not done well. Egypt and Jordan fought against Israel, but they gave that up after a couple of struggles. They've done better than those nations who have continued in their hardness. Syria continues to go downhill, and it does not have a good end because the book of Isaiah, the 17th chapter, declares an end to the city of Damascus, which tells me that Syria officially will not uh, turn and make peace with Israel. They have a very dark future. Now, in this Genesis sequence, chapter 12 chapter 13, we see that Abraham encounters two different nations of these nations as we come to modern times. He goes down to Egypt, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. The Pharaoh sees Sarah, his wife, takes her into his harem, puts her in a purification process. She is not in marriage with him yet. That would happen if God had not intervened, but God did intervene. Abraham did not tell the full truth. He said to the Pharaoh, she's my sister, which was half true. She was his half sister, but he did not tell the Pharaoh, she's my wife. And so in that instance, God had to supernaturally intervene into the situation in order to rescue Sarah from what happened in Egypt. Pharaoh gave Abraham all kinds of treasures, servants, animals, all kinds of things, gold, silver. He enriched him greatly and let him keep that, even though Sarah did not stay and continue as the wife of the Pharaoh. Uh, She must have been a very, very beautiful woman. Uh, But the thing I want you to see is that Abraham was blessed of God in spite of his failure. It is because God made this everlasting covenant, which was an irrevocable covenant, which means that the person who received it didn't have to be perfect in order for that covenant to come about. And so, uh, you know, this is interesting because there are a lot of people in the church today who teach that the church has replaced Israel that Israel's just another nation now, and they don't really matter that much to God because God's doing everything that He's doing in the church, and that's not true. God has a program for Israel and a separate program for the church. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. He identifies the three different groups of people that God sees on the planet. He says, give no offense to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And so he separates the Jews from the church of God. Now, a Jew can be in the church of God if they become a believer in Jesus, but Jews are those who are naturally born who belong to the stock of Abraham. Gentiles are those who were not naturally born of the stock of Abraham. But both Jew and Gentile become part of the church when they believe on Jesus the Messiah. So those are the three groups of people. And so when we read prophecies or study theology, we're looking at what God's saying about any particular group of people, we ask ourselves this question, who's he talking to? He has a program for the Jews, he has a program for the Gentiles, and he has a program for the church of God. And so that's how God sees the world. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 32. Now we see Abram having this dealing with Egypt and he is enriched by this dealing with Egypt. That's in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 13 there is a strife between Abram's men who keep his flocks, his shepherds and the shepherds of Lot, Abraham's uncle. I'm sorry Abraham's nephew very real possibility because of the ages of their fathers that lot may even be older than Abraham uh, because his father was certainly a- older than uh, uh, Abraham so he he could be a uh, a, a uh, an elder to Abraham uh, biologically but not necessarily uh, in relationship and uh, just have to go back and read that and you, you can see what I'm getting at there but the point I want to make is this is that Lot's herdmen were in strife with Abram's herdmen when they came to the water holes. And so Abram, as a peacemaker, went to Lot and said, we got to stop this. And and that's what a real leader does. He, he initiates a solution. So Abram went in to Lot and said, you pick where you want to go, and I'll honor that. And so Lot says, I'll take the plain of Sodom. Now, the plain of Sodom was well watered. It was a paradise. It was a beautiful place. Uh, doesn't look like it does today. Today it's, it's somewhat of a wilderness around the Dead Sea. It's very inhospitable. But in those days, it wasn't like that. Lot chose that, even though there were wicked, wicked cities there. This was land that belonged to Abraham. Abraham didn't have to give it up. So we've got Lot's people going into this area. Today it is the country of Jordan. So this is interesting to me. The two nations that have made peace in modern times with the nation of Israel, Jordan and Egypt are pictured in the Abraham sequence in Genesis 12 and 13. And they are both pictured there as being at peace with Abraham. And so here we have them in fulfillment in these days, being at peace with the children of Israel, both Egypt and Jordan. All right, we've got a whole lot more to go on this but we'll pick it up in the next sequence. I'll see you in just a bit. Welcome back. We're in the middle of the Abraham sequence, which would be Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 14. And I believe that the events of Abraham's life in these three chapters reflect things that are happening right now in the nation of Israel. And let's take a look at this. God blessed Abraham greatly when he came into the land. Uh, Now there was a famine, so for a season he went down to Egypt. And when he was there, Pharaoh gave Abram many, many gifts in exchange for Sarah to be his wife. Uh, He did not take her into his bedroom. That was stopped. Before that could happen, God intervened. And supernaturally, God spoke to the Pharaoh and dealt with him. And he gave up Sarah, sent her back to Abram. And he saw uh, that he was about to make a huge mistake. And Abraham didn't tell him the truth. But Abraham was treated very well for her sake, Genesis 12, 16. He, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. He gave, her, uh, gave Abram all of this stuff. And uh, So what I want you to see here is this. Abram wasn't perfect. He failed, yet God kept his covenant with him, the covenant that God makes with his people, both Israel and the church. It is not a covenant that requires perfection on the part of the people who receive it. It requires faith, but it doesn't require perfection. Genesis 13 too, Abram was very rich in livestock and in silver and gold. Now here we see his amazing prosperity. Uh, this prosperity came to Abram as he returned to the land. He comes back into the land and from Egypt and that's when he becomes rich in cattle, and silver and gold. This is being fulfilled today as the children of Israel have come back into the land of Israel. They have been blessed with prosperity in the most amazing ways, and that's happened since 1948. God purposely spoke to the land, to the dirt and told it to produce for the children of Israel. Now I want you to listen to this. This is Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 6, and God is telling Ezekiel the prophet to speak to the land of Israel itself. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury, because you have borne the shame of the nations. It means you've been conquered and trampled down by nations. And, and, and when they've done that, they have said God couldn't keep his people. God couldn't protect the children of Israel. And that's the shame of what happened here. They did not leave a good testimony. God permitted them to be overcome because they had totally defied him. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that, I, that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they're about to come. Now, you couldn't tell a dime's worth of difference in the land of Israel and all the surrounding areas before the Jews came back into the land. Uh, The the other countries around looked pretty much the same. But since the Jews have returned, there has been a remarkable transformation and even though these other countries at one time may have had some things going for them, they have fallen by comparison to what's happened in Israel. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. So the people have to have food to eat. They have to have shelter. they got to have clothing. God is going to speak to the land itself to produce for them. For indeed I am for you, that's the land, I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times, and will do better things for you than at your beginnings." God said it will be better in these days than it was at the peak of David and Solomon, better than at the beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance, and no more shall you bereave them of children. So God is saying that Israel is going to be blessed tremendously in the land. Now listen to chapter 36, verses 28 through 30. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees, the increase of your fields, so that you need never again to bear the reproach of famine among the nations. So Israel's agriculture is to be blessed beyond belief. Uh, Chapter 36 and verse 34, The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. And we see that with our eyes, how Israel is in stark contrast to all the other nations around it. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. This is a recent report of Israel's agriculture. Because of the diversity of the land, and and you, and you can't understand it or explain it unless you go there. Israel is about 50, 60 miles wide at the widest spot. That's not very wide. And it's only about 250 miles long north to south. It is a tiny, tiny country. And and this is what's pathetic. There are over 20 Arab countries in the world. And we have world leaders pushing Israel to cut their country in half and give it to people who have sworn to destroy them. And they want them to give it up and give up at least half of it, and, and which is absolutely ridiculous when they have over 20 different countries to go to, and there's one Jewish state in the whole world, one. And that, that's absolutely ridiculous. So because of the diversity of the land, and it is an amazing land, 50 miles wide, 250 miles long, it, it, it has Coast that looks like California. I'm telling you along the Mediterranean coast, you'd think you were in Southern California when you're there. Has the same climate, the same look, very similar. The beaches, all of it looks very similar to Southern California. Up in the north part, it looks like the Rocky Mountains. It looks like uh, you're in Colorado. I've driven along highways where there were pine trees. You get out and smell the, 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 the pine scent in the mountains and the air is dry, totally different climate. In the Negev, which is southwestern like New Mexico, Arizona, uh, southern California, the kinds of crops that would be grown in those places, grown there. So you can have in the, like the Megiddo Valley, wheat, sorghum, corn, uh, fruits, vegetables, places like that, avocados, kiwi, guavas, mangoes, grapes on the Mediterranean plain, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, zucchini, throughout the whole country. Melons are grown even in the winter months down in the valleys because of the climate's so moderate. Subtropical areas produce bananas and dates. Uh, There's no other country like this, 50 miles wide, 250 miles long, that has all of this diversity. Uh, Bananas, dates, cherries, apples, and pears grown up in the northern hills. Uh, The Israeli wine industry is now among the best in the world. Cotton is grown on lands that no one thought could grow cotton through drip irrigation, and the Israelis are masters at drip irrigation where they can put even salt water into the ground, and instead of the salt killing the plant, they do it at such a rate that the salt evaporates and the water gets into the crop. Uh, Israeli cows produce the highest amounts of milk per animal in the world. Uh, Average, 10,208 kilograms per cow. In the United States, which we would think we would be the best, 93.31 kilograms. Uh, Japan, 74.97. EU, 61.39. Australia, 56.01. Uh, look at it. Israel, milk production among cows is, is about twice uh, in Israel what it is in Australia. Uh, they are flour producers. Uh, they, they have uh, produced long shelf life tomatoes that uh, previously the farmers had to dispose of 40% of the tomato crop. And uh, today uh, the, the kinds of tomatoes that are uh, grown in Israel uh, will last long enough to make it to market and not spoil. It's just incredible. Uh, Another thing that happened in the last 20 years is that natural gas in great quantities has been discovered offshore. And so now Israel has an incredible uh, source of energy, 6.2 trillion cubic feet of proven reserves in 2015. And uh, in June of uh, 22, uh, Israel agreed to pipe billions in, uh, in natural gas to the EU. And so that's just a fascinating thing, isn't it? And another thing is today, the more tech companies start up, uh, more entrepreneurial uh, things happen in Israel that per capita than any other country in the world. It is a global technological and entre- entrepreneurial powerhouse Uh, Bloomberg recently listed it as the number five uh, technological country in the world. Uh, It is just amazing what they're able to do. And so uh, the Bible says about Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, verse 2, Abraham was rich in cattle, silver, and gold. So we've got three types of riches here. And now that we've seen the children of Israel come back into the land, we've seen something similar happen And uh, only recently has the third leg developed and that's the discovery of natural gas out in the Mediterranean offshore. And so we see three different things. We see the amazing agriculture, but that's only one part of it. Then there is the technology that is incredible, and that's been uh, going for quite some time. But agriculture was first, then the technology, and now it's the natural gas. And so you've got all three of those things working together to make Israel a very prosperous nation. And it reflects exactly what God said in Ezekiel chapter 36, that the country is going to produce wealth for his children and for the people that he made covenant with, their fathers. And they're coming home, and God said he would bless them greatly. So we're witnessing this. We're living in this right now. We are seeing the Abraham sequence being fulfilled before our eyes. And remember... What God said, I will declare the end from the beginning. The thing that has been is that which shall be. So as we march from the paradise part of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, paradise is ended and death becomes Lord over humankind. Sin enters the world. Then we see the Antichrist sequence in Cain. And we see him taking away the sacrifice. Cain is the greatest picture of Antichrist anywhere in the scriptures. And we won't go back into that in detail. But if you want to go back and listen to that, it's in a prior segment. You can hear it and see it for yourself. And then we just keep marching. We come to the Noah sequence, which is the flood, which is a picture of the rapture of the church. Then we get into the next sequence, which is the post-flood sequence where now we see the world defying the five different directives that God gave to Noah. And that we covered in uh, episode nine. Now the Abraham sequence is ongoing. It's happening now and it's happening right alongside uh, the globalism sequence that we talked about in the previous episode. But we see the blessing of God on the nation of Israel itself and we call this the Abraham sequence. What will happen at the end of this sequence? And why is this prosperity so important? Well, the scripture speaks to this and it tells us that Israel will be so desirable that there will be other nations who take a look at what they have and purpose to come and get it for themselves. That is on the horizon, and that's what I will cover in the very next sequence. Welcome to part three of this episode 10, and this is an episode that's dedicated to Abram, and we call it the Abram or the Abraham sequence because in Genesis 12, 13, and 14, we see how Abram comes into the land of Canaan. He's blessed there. He's enriched there. He has dealings with Lot, who represents the country of Jordan, and with Egypt, uh, then we see in Genesis chapter 14 an invasion that takes place. And so uh, let's take a look at it. We'll start with Genesis 14 and verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, kader la king of Elam, entitled king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, uh, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Admah, Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of uh, Bela, that is, Zoar. And what we see here is that these different kings came from the east, a confederation of four powerful nations, and they attacked these five little city-states in the plain of the Jordan River in the south. And so the invaders were not immediate neighbors. They came from afar. So uh, that's key to this. They struck first to the east of the Dead Sea. And I won't read verses 5, 6, and 7 in total, but I'll read 6. They smote the Horites in their mountain of Sierra as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Uh, that is part of Jordan in the southern part. It is east of the Dead Sea. And that's the region that they smoked first. Then they came in and they hit the people of Sodom after that. Uh, But they came first to hit the area east of the Dead Sea. Their purpose was to gain spoil. Uh, it says in Genesis 14, 11, "...they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way." So that's why they came. They came to get stuff. "...they captured Lot, Abraham's nephew." Uh, verse 12, "...they took also Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed." And Abram, when he heard about this, responded immediately, Genesis 14, 14. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan would be to the extreme north end of Israel. probably today it would be in southern Lebanon. Uh, or close to it. He divided his forces against them by night. So he set up to uh, uh, catch them off guard. And uh, uh, you see the people of God being masters of this, attacking a far superior force with an inferior force, but doing it in such a way as to gain a tremendous advantage. Uh, The battle was ended Near Damascus, he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So it's critical that Damascus is mentioned here. And then verse 15 again, uh, it, it says, "...the battle ended quickly." Uh, He did this in the night, and and he brought back all the goods. So it's almost it just happened so quick that it's almost like it didn't happen. Uh, They went in and did it very, very quickly. There's not a lot of great detail about the slaughter. Later we read that that the word slaughter is used to describe what happened, but while it's going on here, uh, we don't read a whole lot about the detail of how they did it. And uh, so it happened very quickly. It was a lightning strike. The aftermath of the battle happens in a valley. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of uh, Kedar Laomer. And please forgive me if I mungle this if you're a Hebrew scholar. uh, But uh, Abraham had a great, great encounter here with the king of Sodom and, and and actually demonstrated authority over him. Let him know, I'm not subject to you. And uh, he refused to take any of the possessions of the people of Sodom. He wouldn't take any of the spoil, even though he was entitled to it. He wouldn't take it. And uh, he said, I don't want you guys saying that I made Abram rich. Abraham wanted God to get the glory. That's what we see about him. So he recovered this great spoil. In verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram, uh, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. So we see that uh, uh, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. We see that God gets all the glory. Uh, here's what Melchizedek said. Uh, he blessed be the God, be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tithe of all. Uh, all the captives are freed, verse 16, that uh, Abram brought back Lot and uh, his, uh, all of the women and the children, they were all freed. Uh, there were sacrificial meals presented. This is in verse uh, 18. The Bible says that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. That's a sacrificial meal in celebration of what happened. Now, none of Israel's past wars correspond to, To this war. Now, Israel had plenty of wars, but none of them are like this one. This one is unique in all of them. And it foreshadows a soon to happen event that we see recorded in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, what we're going to read here are 12 remarkable parallels. Two or three would have been crazy, but 12, that's unheard of. So I want to turn you now to the book of Ezekiel, and we're going to read beginning in chapter 38, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh." Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Here are your allies, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all its troops, and many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard under them. Not all, but most scholars think that this is being led by Russia. There is no doubt about it. That Persia, or what is today the nation of Iran, will be also a big part of that. Clearly, Turkey is spoken of here in the house of Togarma, uh, perhaps Gomer. There are a number of different references. You have to understand that when Ezekiel was talking, Uh, 2,500 years ago, he was talking to peoples as to where they lived at that time. It's very possible that some of these people groups have moved. And so he was dealing with these ethnic groups. They will come together. And we believe that Russia is inferred here because of the name Rosh. There is debate about that. Some people think today that this will be Turkey and Iran leading the charge, but I don't think so, because the reason is because the nation that is leading this is said to be a guard to all the others. Well, that only describes Russia. Russia is the only one who fits the bill for that. They have definitely enabled all of these other countries, and they have given them weapons, all of the military hardware. Most of it comes from the Russians, and that's what we see. Now, there are two areas of Abram's war that are spoken of in this war. In Ezekiel 39.2, the Bible says this fight will happen to the mountains north of Israel, but it also speaks of the fight happening in the area east of the Dead Sea. That's Ezekiel 39 and 11. So it's fascinating, the two different geographical areas that speak of The Genesis invasion from these confederated kings who come against Abram and Lot, they fight to the east of the Dead Sea and to the north of Israel. Uh, These invaders are coming for spoil. Listen to Ezekiel 38, 10, 11, and 12. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder And to take a booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land or in the navel of the land. So they're blessed greatly. And that's today. And so what we're seeing is this invasion will happen during a time of peace, which means there will have to be a time of relative peace in order for this invasion to happen. Uh, As I speak right now, as we're recording this in August of 22, Israel is in a conflict uh, with uh, jihadis from the the Gaza Strip. Uh, So it wouldn't happen. Uh, in a day like today, this, this would have to settle down and calm down. It'll be at a time when everything is very peaceful and also at a time when Israel is extremely prosperous. That is happening, and I can say with all confidence, it will continue to happen. They will continue to be blessed economically. Uh, we see that Israel will recover a great spoil when this is all uh, done. Uh, this war also ends very, very quickly. I want to read to you Isaiah chapter 17. This is fascinating to me. Isaiah 17, I think, is linked to this war because it has something to do with Damascus. Now, Syria is not mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's not listed there as a player, probably because Syria won't be able to do anything against Israel. Uh, in the future, their their army is decimated. The country is nothing like it used to be. Uh, they're being propped up by the Russians and the Iranians right now. Uh, but nonetheless, Damascus is spoken of here in Isaiah 17.1. The burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city it will be a ruinous heap. Now Damascus has been conquered many, many, many times, but it has never been totally destroyed. Here Isaiah says it'll be totally destroyed. And then he describes the order and how this happens and how quickly it happens. Verse 12, woe to the multitude of many peoples. In other words, this will happen when there is a large confederation of nations that come against Israel. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a Rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them, and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at even time trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. That's exactly what Ezekiel 39 says, that, that Israel will spoil those who spoil them. They will recover great spoil. And the culmination of this battle will happen very quickly, and it will happen near the environments, environs of Damascus. Uh, We read that Israel will then be blessed by God, Ezekiel 39, 25. Uh, We see this amazing blessing. Now, therefore, says the Lord God, now will I bring again the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I'll be jealous for my holy name. And we read here from 25 on to the end of the chapter how... A new dimension of the blessing of God comes on the people of Israel after this battle is over with. Uh, We'll see that God is magnified in all the world. Uh, uh, listen to what he says in verse 21, "...I will set my glory among the nations, all nations shall see my judgment which I've executed, my hand which I've laid on them, so that the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward." Uh, The captives are released when you read in verse 25, "...now will I bring again the captives of Jacob." And have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Uh, verse 27: when I brought them back from the peoples, gather them out of their enemies' lands. Uh, the Jews are going to come home uh, to Israel after this war happens. That's why I think it's soon. I think about half the Jews in the world live in Israel right now, and about half live in other places. God said, Behold, I'll gather them from the north country, uh, that's in Jeremiah, and from the coast of the earth. And every major Jewish population center in the world is either in Russia or in Israel or in a coastal city somewhere in the world. And you see that's true in the United States. A large number of Jews in L.A., large number of Jews in Chicago, huge number of Jews in New York City. Uh, maybe over a million and a half Jews in Miami, uh, along the uh, the uh, Atlantic coast, maybe 600,000 in South Florida, and uh, a large number of Jews in Houston as well. So all of these coastal cities, Chicago, I don't know if I mentioned that or not, but a large number of Jewish people live there, they will come home. From all of those places, that's what happens when this is over. The captives are released. This is fascinating. There is a sacrificial meal. Now, listen to what God says in, in Ezekiel thirty-nine verse seventeen. God uh, says, "Assemble your." He speaks. He says, "Wait a minute." He says, "As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God: Speak to every sort of burden to every beast of the field." Assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I'm sacrificing for you. And it will be the bodies of all of these invaders that will be eaten. Now in in the book of Genesis, it was Melchizedek who came out, blessed Abram, and there was a sacrificial meal celebrated, a meal of bread and wine. So you have another sacrificial meal here, and it's literal, and the eating of these bodies. So uh, listen, this is incredible. Twelve different parallels here. The captives are set free both places. Uh, The Great Spoil is captured both places. Uh, The theater of the battle, uh, That's the same in both places. Uh, The city to the north, Damascus, is spoken of in both places. Uh, You see that it comes when there is a time of great plenty for Israel, both places. Uh, So God is magnified all over the world. People recognize that God is at work, and they will give God glory. That is spoken of in both places. So you see one parallel after another. And so this has yet to be fulfilled, but it's going to happen, I believe, very, very soon. So it's the Abraham sequence, the blessing sequence. He enters the land. He receives a blessing that affects the whole world. He struggles with Egypt and Lot, but he prevails. He's superior to them both. He becomes wealthy in three different areas. We're seeing that technology, agriculture, natural gas. We see he overcomes a hugely superior numerical force, wins a great spoil, happens in Genesis 14, also Ezekiel 38, 39. And by Abraham's hand, God is glorified throughout the world. So this is fascinating to me that you see in this sequence things that are happening and are about to happen in our time. And what we see is the thing that has been is the thing that will be. And we see that God declares the end from the beginning we're still not done. We have two more episodes of this. I'll see you next episode. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below? And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below or going to myfaithroots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app,